Verse 5, the text says so clearly, imperative for us to clothe ourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, it says, with humility. As an elder, dear elder Dan, he told me as I was preaching this text, he came to me and says, that's very good image. The Christian should have a second nature in terms of humility. To clothe. We don't go out to school or to a job without clothes. So also you should not even wake up and do your daily Activity without being clothed with humility. And we will see that in this text. First, humility in the church, verse 5. Second, humility in suffering, verses 6 through 7. Humility against the enemy, verses 8 and 9. And then the humility of grace. Verses 10 to 14. Humility in the church, humility in suffering, humility against our enemy, and the humility of grace. First one, humility in the church. Verse 5, let us read again. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The, verse, the word likewise takes you back to verses 1 through 4, which is directions of Peter to the pastors and elders of the church. And that is why here in verse 5, when it says younger, it can mean younger in the faith or chronologically young people. We cannot know for certain. It doesn't matter. The thing is that we should humble ourselves and to submit ourselves to the leadership that God has chosen for the church. So young people in the sense of age or in the sense of Christian living, maturity, must be sufficiently humbled to submit to the leadership of the church. That's one of the ways that we clothe ourselves with humility. The church is one of the best schools and the family too to teach us to be humble with, to one another. And here is an application for you young people. You will imitate and follow someone in this life. Maybe a sportsman, maybe is a singer, maybe it's someone that you like at school, you will imitate and follow and submit your desires, your goals in life, watching and observing that person. Now let me just apply and give you a wake-up call. You have a church, you have a family, 
How about you to have your father, your Christian father, if you have one, and your Christian mother, to have them as your example as they follow Christ? And how about you to find a, an elder, a deacon, or an elderly person that you can be under his influence to watch that person to see his character or her character and to follow to see the character of Christ in that person that's what I want to be that's how I want to develop my faith and that takes humility because it's Foolishness, you try to imitate someone of your age, someone in your school that it's like you. No, you want a mature follower of Christ. You need to humble yourself. And I plead with you, it doesn't matter your age, young lady, or boy, who are listening to me now, cadets here morning find someone who is a fear of Christ who has fear of Christ and follow him or her and you also who is an adult how about find someone to follow you that takes humility too because that person who is following you will see your failures your sin some point they should see you repenting of your sin confessing your sin and repenting how about you parents elders and you elderly people be intentional and go after someone a girl or a boy and invest your life in that person and be vulnerable, showing humility in your leadership. To mold the character of that little one to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter here continues his exhortation and says that all should be humble. The leader must have a humble leadership and those being led should have a humble submission. And all must be humble. Why? Because either you'll be humble by your choice or you will eventually be humbled by God. That's the only two alternatives. When Peter quotes Proverbs 3.34, For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Do you want to fight God? Is that what I want? To fight the one who created everything? That's crazy. That's what the text says. So with that in mind, kind of clothing ourselves with humility in the way that we lead people, in the way that we submit to the people in the church or in the family, and not resist our God to humble under His hand and, and might. He will give us grace. Let me just give you some questions, probing questions. Don't think about anybody else. Someone 
sitting beside you or in the neighborhood or in the family. Think about you and I'll think about myself. Rubin questions about pride. First one, are you humble? Are you proud of your humility? Do you think you are humble? And that's a huge problem there. Probably you are not if you think yourself as humble already. I'm proud of my humility. Second question, do you make fun of other believers from other denominations? I think that's one of the ways, as I see myself as a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, my heart is prone to look down to those who think differently in theology. Is that your case? Third, do you criticize and hate being criticized? You're easy to see faults in others, or problems, or failures. And when someone points to your problem, it doesn't go well. You don't receive it well. It can be a sign of pride. Do you ever repent? When was the last time you repented? To your wife, or to your husband, or to your children, or to your parents, or to your colleague, or someone in the church? When was the last time you repented? Pride people, they tend not to repent at all. Always having excuses, blame shifting. Are you always right, never wrong? You are in the circle, talking, you know everything. And you're always the one who is the, the one who is right in everything. Or about this one? Are you angry at people who are proud? That one is so, so hard on me. Are you proud? Because you are angry at people who are proud. You look down on people who look down on people. I cannot stand that proud person. Ah. You are proud because that person is ahead of you, above you. You cannot, you cannot stand that kind of person. Who are you to, to think you are better than me? Come down to my level. Is that a sign of pride, isn't it? And the last one, last question. Are you over-preoccupied with your own image? You see, that's one of the evidence of pride in our life. We are enamored to ourselves. We are addicted to our own selves. Always looking, always paying attention how we look, how we are doing, what people think of us. This is very serious. We need to see where we show our pride and kill it. Because God resists the proud, but the humble he gives grace. Especially in the context of the church. So let's close ourselves in the church with humility. Second, 
Humility in suffering, verses 6 and 7. 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter now teaches how to be humbled before God in a different aspect now. He mentioned the paradoxical, unexpected principle of life that the way up is the way down. That the way of exaltation is the way of what? Humiliation. That for you to be exalted, you have to walk down the path of humility first. And then in verse 6, it says, can you depend, totally depend on the hand of God and not on your own? Then you will be exalted. It says in verse 6 so clearly, humble yourselves. That's an imperative. Under the mighty hand of God so that, all the, all, that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. That's the imperative. Now, verse 7 explains to you how you can obey verse 6. Verse 7 now explains to you how can you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. How can obey, you can obey the imperative of verse seven, 6. Now, in verse 7, you see, is another verb. Casting. All your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You see, how do you, can you see how you humble yourself under his mighty hand? You cast all your anxiety on him. Let me ask you another question. Do you know when you are not humbled? When you are anxious. That's the inference. That's the necessary deduction and inference that you have to make when you read verse 6 and 7. I know there is biological, physical issues about anxiety and all that we suffer nowadays. But many times we forget a spiritual issue that we never should put aside. The text is saying so clearly to us that one of the ways that we show pride in our lives towards God is when we are anxious. Insomnia, lack of patience, because you do not cast your care upon Him knowing that He cares for you. In this case, anxiety can, I'm not saying always, here Peter is emphasizing that it can be the opposite of being dependent on God. And we should examine ourselves if, if that is the case with us. And anxiety show, yes, it can show pride. In a way that we want to substitute God. We ourselves want to be God. In this way. As you can apply it to yourself, and I can apply that truth to myself. When we, when I experience anxiety, when I see in myself, I see this. I want all power and all and all knowledge. And when I do not have that, 
I'm anxious with the problem that is around me. What is anxiety? It is an anticipated suffering with a difficulty that I am going to face. I want control and power to solve the problem, but I know I do not have it, so I become anxious. I want all the power and control to solve that issue. And when I discover that I do not have it, then I'm anxious. And I want to know how to solve the problem. But many times, this is a mystery to me. Therefore, I become anxious again. All power and all knowledge. It says, no, you are not God. You are not all-knowing and all-powerful. Just cast your anxiety to the one who is. And rest on him. And then he gives a reason because in the past he has been caring for you. In so many ways. And many times it never goes to my mind that God is all-powerful and all-knowing. Especially when I am going through hardship. And I remind myself that he cares for me and deep right there at the root of my problem not knowing how to handle it I can see pride in my own soul yeah I have so much amnesia that God is in control that God is wise and that he is handling my situation Pride blinds me. Doesn't it blind you? Third, now humility against the enemy. Humility against the enemy. Verses 8 and 9. says this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, you think it's not... These two verses, there's nothing to do with humility. I think it's deeply related to humility and See, the text says, be sober-minded, vigilant, be sober. And I think one of the ways that we show pride is that we disregard Satan in our lives. You know, there are type of Christians in one end, as C.S. Lewis once said, that everything is Satan. But I think in our camp of reformed faith, we are in the other side of the, of the issue. That never is a, there's nothing of Satan in our lives. We're never even conscious that he is around like a lion wanting, us to, wanting to devour us. And it says, be sober. Be vigilant. I know that with the sovereignty of God, he cannot touch you. He cannot do anything. But one of the ways that the sovereignty of God works in us 
so that Satan would not have a hand on us is to be sober and vigilant that he's, he wants to devour us. And that takes humility. You know, when he talks about Satan, we know that his problem was pride. That's why he fell. And here, when we are dealing with our enemy, we need to have humility to be clothed as a second nature as we face him. First, be sober and vigilant because you are fighting him every day of your life. Secondly, why Satan call a lion here? Now pay attention to this. I'm going to take a little bit of time so that other passages of Scripture may shed light here so we can understand what's going on here in the text. Why Satan call a lion roaring? Roaring like a lion. Who is other person, another person who is also called a lion, warring in the Bible. God is also called a lion in Amos chapter 3, verse 4 and 8, and Hosea chapter 11, verse 10. And here I think it's the point of what Peter is explaining to us. God in the Bible is called a lion warring. But here's Satan doing the same thing that God does. So Satan wants to imitate the voice of God to deceive you and devour you. And all is based on the lack of humility and the presence of pride. So you have two warring lions on one side and it's another warring lion on the other side. How can you differentiate? How can you distinguish the kind of warring because it's a question of life and death if you do not know how to do it. And for you to know how to do it, you need humility. Let me show you how as an application for all of us. Let me show you two ways that Satan does this, warring like a lion. Two ways. Two major ways. Accusation and temptation. You see, in Revelation 12, he's our accuser. And in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, he is the, tempta he is the tempter. He tempts us. Accusation and temptation. That's his warring like a lion to devour you. With what? Accusation and temptation, kids. Okay? Now, let us think about accusation. With accusation... Satan looks a lot like the conviction of sins that the Spirit brings. Both Satan and the Spirit is pointing you with, pointing you your sin. Satan with accusation, the Spirit with conviction of sin. How can you tell the difference? How can you know the difference? It all depends on pride. The Spirit does not crush us when He points to our sins. To bring conviction. There's something sweet and liberating the work of the Spirit. But Satan wants to crush you. To make us to despair as you see your sin. Like, you think you are saved doing that? What you did? You are a monster. There's no way out for you. There's no chance for you. You are condemned. There's no hope. 
That's what Satan does. And he's working to do that with us. He's working our pride. See how you are not better than that, that guy? See how you, you are worse than that girl? He's working our, with our pride to crush us. On the other hand, the Spirit of God is giving us conviction. He's warring in us to humble us so that we can see, yes, our sins. We can see that, yes, we are monsters transgressing God's law. But He's pointing us to Christ, saying, yes, I am a monster. But there it is, Satan. I hope you obeyed the ten words for me. My hope is there, nor in me. And that need, that needs humility to depend on another, to go to another, not on yourself. You see two warring lions, but it needs humility to go to Christ and not to yourself. But there's another way the devil imitates God. It is with temptation. Satan tempts, God tests. You see the two warring again? Satan do what? What does he do? He tempts, God tests. The temptation of Jesus, you see, you go there, he tempts Jesus with so many things. He's working the pride of man. You can have everything. Go and transgress the law of God. There's no justice. Go ahead. You are the man. Don't think about the consequence. Close your eyes and do it, man. You'll be all right. He's working with our pride to disregard the holiness of God, His goodness, His justice. Temptation is for our destruction, but testing is for our maturity. What is the difference? Pride and humility. With pride, there's no fear of God. Don't fear God. Go ahead. You are in charge. In humility, when God tests us, is to humble ourselves so that we may not fall into temptation, but run, run after Christ for refuge, for comfort, for consolation, and for His promises. It all depends on pride and humility. But now in verse 9, another aspect that we see that we need to be clothed with humility is to fight against our enemy. You see two warring lions. How can you tell it is God or Satan? Humble yourself. Be clothed with yourself. Looking unto Jesus. The other one is looking to yourself. Focusing on your heart. And it's Satan working in you. Now let us fight against him. Because in verse 9 it says, so clearly, resist him firm in your faith. And here you see it's a kind of language of a court of justice. That the enemy is probably bringing Christians to be judged and kill them. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
How can I resist Satan and be steadfast in the faith? Again, humility. Do you know what happens when you are facing affliction? I know one of the ways that I do it. I try to compare myself with others. It's just like when I was a kid, right? I was in first grade or the second grade. I, there's always someone ahead of me or I was ahead of someone. If I think that uh, I had a friend in first grade and I'm in the second grade, uh, you don't know anything about it. Do you think first grade is hard? Because you have not been in second grade as I am right now. And if you are in the third grade, you look back, second grade? You don't know anything about third grade. We do that even with suffering. Oh, I broke my arm. It's so painful. Oh, you don't know. I broke my leg. Even worse. You don't know anything about suffering. We compare ourselves. And even with our pride, we think we are better than the others. We suffer better than you. And here the text show us that we are the only ones who are going through this problem. Pity on me. Oh, I'm, what a life I'm going through. I'm the only one. Isn't that how I feel? Many times when I'm going through hardship, it's pride in my heart. I think I am the only one going through that kind of suffering. And again, I'm focusing on myself. As a result, I am tempted to give in and give up the gospel. Oh, how many times in my experience that in my homeland, I've seen people giving up faith. Because of suffering. What kind of God is this? How can I go through this problem if he loves me? Oh, how many people are tempted that because he is serving God, going to the Bible, praying and do all this stuff. Now, is that what you are giving me? Is that how you treat me? Is that how you love your son? What kind of God are you? You stop resisting. And that's where Satan is testing, tempting you to give up faith. Because of pride. Because you think you are the only one going through this problem. To abandon everything and be devoured by the devil, by the devil and Satan. But Peter says to us this morning, you are not the only one. Others suffer like you. Even worse suffering. And because of the gospel that you are not suffering for many times. Isn't it our case? When you know this, this gives you maturity. Humble yourself and fortifies you in the faith to resist the devil. Let me give you an illustration of this truth. That really humbled me when I heard it. It was in a conference there in my homeland that uh, Dr. Biki went and uh, he told a true story. When his uh, brother went to a bookstore and in the counter he saw a lot of Bibles and he asked the guy, why is all the Bible here? What's going on? And the guy said, I'll tell you the story. A missionary went to Turkey and his goal there in Turkey with a Muslim country, as all we all know, it's a Muslim country. They do not allow to sell Bibles or give Bibles away. But he went there to do that. 
And the authorities said to him, stop giving Bible. Otherwise, you will suffer. And he says, I will not stop giving Bibles. You will not? They come over here. They brought him in. And they started to take out every tooth of his mouth. Each one. When there was none, I'm going to stop? No. I will continue giving the Bible. Then give me, give me your hands. Let's take all the ten nails one by one. You're going to stop? Nope. Then give me your nails of your feet one by one. Are you going to stop? No. I will continue doing it. I want people seeing the gospel and being converted. And then they beat him up with lashes as many as they could. And they threw him on the street. And by God's grace and by God's providence, a Christian lady that never didn't, didn't know each other was a person that he did not know. Took him, took him to the hospital, and then sent him back to America. And then he stayed in the hospital for six months to get healed. And after that, when he was healed, guess where he went to? Back to Turkey. And those Bibles that the brother of Dr. Beaky was asking about were more Bibles for him to give in Turkey. When I listen to the kind of story, nowadays it's not in the first century, it's now. That humbles me. That put me into the dust. Because when I realize many times the sufferings and the hardships that I go through in this life, it's not even related to the gospel. It's not because I'm giving my life to preach the gospel, to give Bibles to people who do not know about Christ. It's only my concerns in the family or the health issues. And I'm complaining and even time tempted to give up faith. And when I see people like this, it humbles me, humbles me to the core. It doesn't you? Who am I to murmur about suffering? And have the audacity to abandon my faith when I have a fellow brother like that. And fight with the good fight of faith, depending on Christ. Because if there's one that really humbled me, it was my Savior. Because he did it for me. He suffered. And literally, Satan wanted to devour him. He resisted until the end. But I cannot end this sermon being clothed with humility without the last point. Verses 10 to 14. I'm not going to read it all of it. Just want to point out that all of them, almost all of them, either expressly, explicitly talk about grace. Or depends on the truth of grace. For example, verse 10. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God of all grace, when you suffer for a real little while. And in verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And then we stern, stern, stand firm, stand firm, firm in it. And then he talks about election and peace of God, that we are in Christ. And all of those things depend on the grace of God. And I want you to go back home because we are fighting against our own pride. And I believe that we always will fight against our pride until Christ takes us home. We all will. Pride has so many faces. When you think that you kill it, it shows up again. And I think when we meditate upon the Humbleness, the humility of grace as Peter ends his letter. It gives us a weapon to kill that pride every day of our lives. Because the body of the letter of 1 Peter, the body of it is all about suffering. That we just talked about in this last, last point. All about suffering. Every chapter you see, if you read 1 Peter, he talks about affliction and suffering that the body of Christ goes through. But the heartbeat, kids, the heartbeat of this letter, and I want you to challenge you to read it this afternoon. No one, in one set, read it. The heartbeat is all about the cross. The body is about suffering, but every time he mentions suffering, he talks about the cross of your Savior as the basis for you to see and to handle and to face your suffering. But the cross of Christ that you believe, that's what I'm going to do right now. Because if you think that to fight pride is not having it, that humility is the absence of pride. You are dead wrong. Let me say that again. If you think that to fight pride is not having it. Not having it. Or that humility is the absence. The lack of pride. You are dead wrong. Is that not, that's not the way you fight it. That's misleading. It will produce even more pride in your heart. See how I am so good? I kill it today. I'm so good. That pride comes in again. Oh, if I read more, if I go to church more, if I do better things. That's just like gas, putting gas in fire, into the fire. It will produce more fire of pride. So how do you kill it? Humility is not the lack of pride. Humility is using the right kind of pride in your life. You see, we have a sinful kind of pride that we, talk, we talked about. 
But with grace, we have a kind of humility of grace. Or if I can say it in another way, we have a pride of grace. We need to practice a gracious pride. A kind of pride that honors God, that worship God, that magnify our God in our hearts. It's not the absence of pride, but putting instead in His place, in its place, a kind of pride that worships our triune God. Yes, kill your sinful pride. Yes, destroy your sinful pride that focus on you. But replace it with a kind of pride that is based on grace and that magnifies your God. That's why it says, clothe your, yourself with humility. You don't be naked. I'm going to be naked with my sinful pride. You don't walk around with no clothes. Yes, put off your sinful pride. Yes, take off your sinful pride. Your clothes are your sinful pride. But don't walk around naked. Clothe yourself with the kind of pride that honors God, that worships Him. Do what Paul did in Galatians chapter 6. And here is the kind of humility that comes out of grace. It's a kind of pride that comes out of grace when he says in chapter 6 of Galatians, but God forbid that I should boast of glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom he is crucified and by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Yes, forbid that I should boast in anything except in the cross of Christ. That's where you learn in so many places. For example, in the psalm, just listen to this, Psalm 34, that we are going to sing after the sermon. We need to humble ourselves, to be clothed with ourselves, with the pride that worships our God. 34, verse 2. 1 and 2, I will bless the Lord all times. He praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. That's why you learn in Jeremiah chapter 9 that the wise man should not boast in his wisdom. Right? That the strong man should not boast in his strength. That the rich man should not boast in his riches. But the one who boasts should boast in whom? In God. That's what we need. And that's a reminder to ourselves about the gospel. I'm not boasting my performance. I'm not boasting who I am. I'm not boasting what I did or I did not do. I boast in the one who did everything for me. I boast of the one who obeyed the law completely in my place. That's the gospel, kids. I boast in the one who not only obeyed the law completely in my place, but he died for me to save from the curse that I deserved because I disobeyed the law. That's my boast. That's my pride. That's my glory. That's my honor. That's my majesty. That's the meaning of my life. Not in myself, not in my performance, not in my good works, but in the works of the one who did everything for me. That is why Paul said, forbid that I boast in anything except on the cross, where the world is crucified to me and I am to the world. That's how we humble ourselves. 
and clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. And with him comes his amazing humility to live this life for his glory. Let us kill pride by clothing ourselves with our Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Father, even in a moment of praying, even in a moment of preaching, pride may be, sinful pride may be present. That's how twisted our heart is. How deceiving it is. But at the same time, There is more grace in Christ than there is sinful pride in you and in us. There is more amazing grace of the cross because of Christ than there is the horrible sin of pride in us. And that's our confidence. That's our hope. Please help us. Please work in us. Please remind us of the grandeur, the majesty of the cross, the gracious cross of our Lord. We plead with you. Give us your Holy Spirit to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>